Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I do believe there'll be something here I can give you that you've perhaps never thought about, never considered. But let's read the scriptures first. Beginning at verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says this, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now let's just stay with those two verses and the title of the message taken right from verse 10. Very simply, Godly Sorrow. And in order to keep the title short, it's just simply Godly Sorrow. But I could also give it an alternate name such as Godly Sorrow, what it is, what it's not. Another title that I had in mind is Two Types of Depression. And that's really what I'm going to talk to you about today is Depression comes in two basic categories, but we'll get to that. It's been over 25 years as I began to think about this one incident. And years ago, when our church was up on the hill, I initiated a Sunday that we gave the people advance notice that it was to be Give God Your Best Sunday. So you would wear your best outfit that you have, your best clothes, Give God your best offering, financial offering, our best prayers, the best that we could do for singing. Whatever it was, give God your best. And I think that was the title of my message as well, many years ago. But I will never forget, the message that I gave was on the story of the prodigal son, who goes out and lives in deep sin against his father. And then while he's brought to the point of such poverty that he's eating what the swine pigs would eat, which for a Jew, that's an abomination. It came to him that he would be better off going back to his father and just simply asking. He says, no, I know I've done a lot to not really be your son anymore, but let me just work for you because his father was, you know, prosper in business because at least, he said in his head, at least my father's servants are treated well. So as you know the story of the prodigal son, the father sees the son coming, runs out to meet him, And the father gives the son his very, very best. His best ring, his best robe. He throws a party. The older brother is angry. You never gave me your ring. You never gave me your robe. You never threw me a party. And then, you know, the father explains how his son was lost, but now he's found. That was my message. The intent of the message was, since God gave his very best, let us give our very best. And that was it. And after we had time of prayer, we went home. Just a few hours later, I received a phone call at my home, and the uh, man introduced himself. He wasn't actually someone who came regularly. He wasn't a member of the church. He shared with me that he and his wife was in the service that day. And for whatever the specific reason was, I never knew. I'm not sure he ever knew. His wife simply mentioned to him, I'll never be good enough for God, which would have been hard for her to take that out of the message that I gave. But... That was what she said. She went into the barn and hung herself, committed suicide. And naturally, as a preacher, you think through, you know, what could I possibly have said to initiate that? But he was very clear about, Pastor, wasn't anything that you did or anything you said, and she's been depressed and all this here. Very odd situation. You know, some things in ministry you wish you could unsee, 
and unhear, but you can't. And that there always, from time to time, comes back to me how someone could actually listen to a message about God giving his very best, and you know, we give his best in return, and then and somehow in her mind, which she was suffering from depression to begin with, twist it and commit suicide, which she did. So what I want to do with that story there, it's a true story, is introduce to you something that I just mentioned you probably have never thought about, most people have never thought about. That there's actually two types, two categories of depression. Now those of you, some of you watch my daily broadcast, which lately hasn't been daily, but I do plan on getting back to those daily broadcasts very soon, uh, on anxiety and depression. So obviously I have a heart for people who are depressed and anxious and so on, have mental afflictions. But there's actually two different categories of depression. One is the one that we're used to. People are depressed for any number of reasons, problems in the home and problems growing up, growing up, then there's problems in the home, the marriage, lots and lots of reasons for people to suffer from depression. But what many Christians don't recognize is God himself introducing depression. So we have worldly depression, which as I just mentioned to you, I obviously have a heart for it because I have about 300 videos on it and I reach out to people trying to help them with their depressions and their anxieties and so on, panic attacks. But what we need to recognize as professing Christians is that there is a type of depression that God introduces into our life. And that's what you're reading here, godly sorrow. It says, as we can read, godly sorrow works repentance. Now, if you look through the history of revivals, and in particular, the revivals of Charles Finney, you'll find that, first of all, real revivals really biblically oriented revivals in the beginning don't produce joy. It produces what we know as conviction. If you read the revivals of Jonathan Edwards, you'll see people laid out on the lawn outside the church, but not laying out there because of something that we've seen in recent years, you know, this so-called slain in the spirit. They're laying prostrate for fear of what the book says. Same with Charles Finney. He came here to the city of Rome one man that would pray, Father Nash, would always go out a week or two ahead of him and would pray and pray and pray all day long, every day. And then, of course, there would be other churches praying, people praying. And then when Finney arrived, for instance, in Rome, it's recorded that the fear of God was so heavy on the whole city that it was affecting even the animals. People were nervous. People were edgy. Today we would call it feeling stressed. But no one could put their finger on what it was. And that's what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. The knowledge of what God can do, the knowledge of what God has done, when his commandments are broken, and mainly when his commandments are disregarded when they're already known. And what God says, for instance, if you look at the curse on Mount Ebal or the blessing on Mount Gerizim, God announces a blessing and a curse, both coming from the hand of the Lord. Obey my words, here's the blessings, a long list of blessings. But if you don't, and you do these things that the nations have done, a whole list of curses. When people take this seriously, I know you're saying, oh, that's old covenant, but God's morality hasn't changed. And God's nature hasn't changed. And when people understand that, it'll produce, and I'll just narrow it down, a type of depression. In Finney's revivals in particular, there was a pastor's wife that after Finney started preaching was just totally irate with him basically saying to him that you can't say these type of things in this church and you can't and all that. And then she fell into a major depression. What I'm trying to share with you is that there's two types. 
Let's read it. The sorrow of the world works death. But godly sorrow, in the beginning of verse 10, works repentance to salvation that's not to be repented of. I'll explain that in just a moment, what that means, but most of you could probably get the gist of it. The depression, that's the word I want to use now. The depression of the world works at death. And for some, it could be a permanent death. Actually, you know, it's recorded that depression and heart disease are somehow connected. That's pretty much known in the medical field. But in most cases, it just takes the life out of you. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to shave. You don't want to dress. You don't feel like eating. You lose your ambition. You lose your vitality. It's a serious thing. And again, that's why I address it on my broadcast. But that's different than when God introduces a depression that comes from what the Apostle Paul did. So let me give you the background of the story so that you understand it. In the church at Corinth, which the Apostle Paul founded, there were many, many problems in the church. Many. And he addresses them in 1 Corinthians, his first letter. But in one in particular, there was a man who was having sex with his father's wife, not his mother, but his stepmother. And when the Apostle Paul learned of that, among other things that he addresses in 1 Corinthians, he tells the Corinthian church, he says, you're rejoicing and you shouldn't be rejoicing. He says, this type of thing doesn't even happen among the Gentiles, the unbelievers. Don't even do this type of thing. And he instructs them to take him out of the fellowship, that God will give him a heart of repentance, which actually is what happened. That's what he's addressing here. The man began to have a depression, right? godly sorrow, and he turned from his sin and he stopped. Now, at that point, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, okay, now bring him back in the fellowship, unless he's overwhelmed with his depression and overwhelmed with his sadness and sorrow of heart. Notice there in verse 9 that he says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. I'm not rejoicing because I made you sad. I'm rejoicing that what I said to you made you, particularly this individual, and those that were in the church that didn't like what Paul was saying in general, that it led them to a place of repentance. In the man's situation with having sex with his stepmother, he stopped. That's what repentance is. You stop. We slip and we fall. We've been through this many times. We all know that we've done that. We do that. That's not the same. Repentance is you turn from it. You don't do it anymore. And that's what happened here. But it wasn't produced by anything less than discipline. Anything less than what was the result of a depression of the spirit. That was from the Apostle Paul by the wisdom of God. But God has a way of introducing depressions into our life that are of a godly sort. Let me tell you what repentance is not, though I think that you know. It's not simply saying to God or maybe for us to say to each other, okay, I'm sorry. We understand insincerity. For whatever the motive may be for someone to say, yeah, I'm sorry, we know that they're not. Now, obviously, God knows when a person is sincerely like David. He commits sin with Bathsheba, but he compounds it by trying to cover it by having the husband killed in battle, which basically was premeditated murder, and he was found out. God spoke to Nathan. Nathan spoke to him about it, and David repented. God will introduce into your life a depression that is called godly sorrow. It's a type of discipline that is designed to lead us to stop doing what we're doing. And you can name all types of things. This happened to be a sexual sin, but we could name all types of things. And this depression that's introduced or chasing that's in our life is designed to get us to stop. You understand that human nature, you could justify any sin? I don't know much about this kid that went and shot them people yesterday. I don't know anything about him at all. But 
let's say as a, for instance, somewhere along the line, he begins to justify why he did it and all this stuff. Well, we know that that don't fly with us, how much less with God. But let's face it, you know, the majority of us here, more than likely, are never going to commit a crime at the level that it's going to be, you know, recognized in the community and all of that. But what we don't often see is the crimes that we commit against God, and we justify it. Adultery is a bit different. Murder is certainly much different than adultery as far as its shock quality. But remember, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and the Ten Commandments, all of these things are named in the book. And for each one was the death penalty. Adultery, where we would say, well, yeah, I'm kind of like a womanizer, but I'm not a murderer. So it didn't matter in that respect what sin you committed. In the Ten Commandments, there was the death penalty attached to so many of these things. And truth be known, still is. We'll see it in a minute when we get to the scriptures. It still is. Except we don't execute people under the new covenant. Our government may, if it's a capital crime like murder, a mass shooting, but even then, most times in most states now, there's no more electric chair or firing squad in South Carolina just restored the firing squad. There's not usually too many of them, so they just stay on death row till they die, really. But in the Old Covenant, they were actually killed by the community. We have to realize that we cannot do the same things and have less of a penalty because there's this kind of a amorphous idea of grace. Read Romans 6. I refer to it quite frequently. Read it. Maybe we'll get to it in a little while, I don't know. But what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin? Sorry, I didn't understand. Well, most people don't understand. I'm talking about sin. You think they're not listening? You think they're not watching? Well, you keep listening to what I'm saying. Unbelievable. Um, we have to understand that the penalty for us is no different than it was in the Old Testament, except we're not going to see it immediately. That's what the Bible names in the book of the Revelation, the second death. So let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and this will point out what I'm trying to share with you. For the most part, instructions or principles in the Bible are pretty straightforward. I mean, it's not a lot of guesswork. Obviously, there's mysteries in there and deeper things. But some of these things, like the verses we're about to read right now, pretty much anybody can understand it. So let's read them. Verse 9, chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now notice this word, deceived. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. We actually see a longer list. I don't know that we'll get to that today in Galatians chapter 5. There's even a longer list of what's known as the works of the flesh. But look at verse 11. And such were, that's past tense, such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But I want you just to look at the list here. Now notice we're in the same church. We're still at Corinth, which is in Greece. He's introducing, in his first letter, the problems that they were having in the church. There was a lot of them. I want to give you a loose translation of what is being said here so it's even more clear to you. Don't you know that people who are unjust won't inherit God's kingdom? Keep this in mind. You don't have to go there, but let me go back there so that we're not confused. The very beginning of 1 Corinthians by the Apostle Paul, he states this. 
Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, and so on. So it's very clear that he's not writing to people who don't know anything about Jesus. He's writing to people who you're called to be a saint, you're called to be set apart, you're the church of God. But he says, these things here, they cannot happen. Don't you know, let's read it one more time, don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, don't be deceived. Those who are sexually immoral, those who worship false gods, adulterers, both participants in same-sex intercourse, thieves, the greedy, drunks, abusive people, and swindlers won't inherit God's kingdom. Now we can keep defining and defining and redefining, but I just want you to get the gist. So you say, well, I'm not likely to be committing adultery, and I'm not likely to be a swindler, an extortioner, but are you abusive with your mouth? Are you abusive towards people? And do you use scriptures to justify your abuse? So God is saying, no, no, no. Pharisees did that. And Jesus had rarely, if ever, anything good to say to them, always reproving them, told them they're not going to see the kingdom on more than one occasion. You see, if we don't understand what the point of the Bible is all about, we may miss it. This vague idea of uh, it's all by grace and mercy, which is true, absolutely true, is the means to what the book is all about. It's about us being converted into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. For instance, in fornication, we read that a man, if he is joining himself to a harlot in a sexually immoral situation, is joining Christ to a harlot. And it's strictly reprimanded and forbidden. We, as professing Christians, often accent these larger sins, murder, like I just said, adultery, homosexuality is named in here, drunkards. One thing I just want to give to you, I've seen this in prison ministry when I was there for seven years. The adulterer but he's not really an adulterer, he's just a woman's man. That's a clever way of saying, and I've said this actually to guys who've talked to me. Well, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, a ladies' man. I said, what you're saying is that you're an adulterer. Well, you know, see, because the biblical word has much more weight. I met a person who, I don't know that it's still the case with this individual, had a big problem with alcohol, drinking copious quantities of alcohol, and then when they met with me, they would talk about, well, it's, it's my medicine or on one occasion, this woman told me, she said, well, I medicated myself over the weekend. I said, do you mean you got drunk? And she didn't like that word. You see, because that's the biblical word. It's not medication, you're drunk. And God is very clear about that. Now, by the way, I want to say this again. I mentioned it last week or the week before. There are medications for physical and, I guess, mental ailments as well. But it's not the same as the abuse of drugs and alcohol and anything else. But here, so the adulterer who's not adulterer, he's a ladies' man, is telling the drunk, you're not going to the kingdom. And the drunk is telling the other man who's the adulterer, you're not going to the kingdom. But the real surprise is that God is saying, neither one of you are going. I have to make judgments, what's right, what's wrong. That's what I'm called to do as a teacher, as a pastor. This is right, that's wrong. But that's different than being judgmental. Let's take something else that slides by often as like, well, that's just me and all that. And I mentioned it before. Because it's more difficult to see anger or wrath, what the Bible calls wrath. Now, that's in Galatians 5, if you take the time to look it up. Also on the list of things, it said that I've told you before, as I've told you in times past, they which do such things, this 19 works of the flesh listed, 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean you'll never lose your temper. Doesn't mean there's times when uh, anger is actually righteous, but for most part, for most of us, our anger is unjustified. But we like to justify that and then be angry at the murderer and be angry at the adulterer and angry at the drunk while we justify our own sin. What we need to do in this age, and I just mentioned it to you, so let me say it again. If we didn't know what the Bible says, and certainly most of you here do, if not all of you here do, we would think in this point in time, when you get up to the news in the morning, as some of us did, I saw this yesterday, like some of you did as well, you get up in the morning and they're reviewing how 10 innocent people are shot to death in a grocery store by this murderer. You would think, with everything happening, you know, so much is going on all the time, we forget there's a major war going on with Russia and Ukraine and everything else. If you just take the time to look, go beyond what the media is feeding and read more. You'll see there's a lot going on around the world that fits to this book. We would think that this would be the time when people would really be drawing close to Christ. That they would want to hear the Bible as unadulterated, to use the word, as possible. Just let it speak for itself. Do you understand that I'm just letting the Bible speak for itself? I didn't make this up. You can't say, where did you find that? I always give you a chapter and a verse. We would think, again, that this would be a time people are just pressing in to know God. Almost every spare moment is given over to a time of prayer and some meditation, reflection, Bible reading and fellowship, whatever. But that's not the case. It's not the case. And that's what the scriptures said and say. This know also that in the last days many, excuse me, some shall depart from their faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils at a time when we need God the most. But here's the thing, as I've told you before, God doesn't negotiate. I may... And I may be wrong if I've negotiated God's word out of his will. But one thing I know at the end, God does not negotiate his word. It is what it is. It says what it says. It means what it says and so on. So we have this. We have this idea of godly sorrow, of a depression that can come on you at seasons of your life. You're not able to distinguish it too much from other types of depression. It feels the same. You start to go and just wonder, you know, what's life all about? And, or, or for the Christian, maybe, where's God? I, I don't feel his presence anymore. But it could be a lot of things. But when initiated by God, it's designed to get us to reflect and to meditate and to acknowledge, as we do here each week before the communion service, look at your heart, examine it in the light of the word, best you understand it and know it. And when it's wrong, you have to say to yourself, God, this is wrong. Let me tell you how God works. Why do we see, and I'm talking about the church, why do we see so many public figures like preachers being called out publicly? I'll tell you why. It's not because that's God's first choice. It's not. God's first choice is he meets, like he did with David, in private. If David had stopped with the adultery, it would have been a mess, very embarrassing, shameful, a lot of things, but it wouldn't have ended up where it did. Because at the end of David's life, God reflects and says, well, he was a man after God's own heart, but in that one thing, he displeased God in what he did. God met with David in private. It's not recorded, but this is how God works. He meets with you in private, and he speaks through the word, and he speaks to your conscience, and you say, if you say, God, I acknowledge my wrong. This is simply wrong. God help me in all that then there's no need for God to, quote, expose you. There's no need. This is hard for us to understand, I think. But the love that God has for us and in his design, that if that's not going to happen privately, then God will keep bringing it forward and forward and forward until you can't avoid it. And that will bring on certainly a depression that the intent is then to say, against thee and thee only have I sinned. That was David. After he was publicly exposed, 
against thee and thee only. When we sin against God in private, and we start to justify anything that we've read here, let's face it, you know, if sin didn't feel good, we wouldn't do it. If sin was painful right out of the gate, we wouldn't be doing it. Getting drunk is fun, initially. Whether you stay married or not, and yet you commit adultery with another woman, it feels good. And other things that we could name that some of us wouldn't agree with that we feel good, but others say that it does. But it doesn't stay like that. And the situation gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So there's two types of depression. One is coming from the world. This is how I think of life. When you hear people talk today, you know, life is tough, life is hard. Life since the Garden of Eden has not ever been easy for any generation ever. I think we're suffering from a lot more stress than other generations, but still, it was never easy. And then we come to Christ and all his demands, crucified life and all of this, and that's not easy. So this is how I look at it. There's only two roads you can go down. You can obey Christ, and that's not easy, to be at your post and to do your duty and you know, everything that we know. Or you can go your own way and give yourself over to the alcohol, to the adultery and other things that we've read here, whatever it may be abusive language, being an abusive person. And I caution you against this. Be very careful that you're not abusive using the scriptures because I tell you, whatever you sow, you will definitely reap. And you don't want that. That's not the purpose of godly depression. Godly depression is to get you turned around so God can restore unto you, we sang it, the joy of your salvation. In other words, God's intent is good, is to not work death, get you away from what is leading to death. So you have this here. Life is hard without Christ. Life is hard with Christ. Life is hard. Difference being, this continually leads you down the road to death. And in the end, the book declares, the Bible declares, a final death. A death from which there is no escape, which we know is hell. And then eventually the lake of fire. This one here, though hard, produces the fruit of the Spirit. It produces peace, the fruit of righteousness. And then you say, no matter how hard it gets following Christ... This is the right road. No matter how hard it is, I will continue to follow. I will continue to go. When God has to introduce godly sorrow or godly depression, it's because you've turned and you're starting to go back. Like when Israel wanted to go back to Egypt. This is way hard, too, too hard. We don't have food. We don't know where the water's coming from. We don't know where we're going. And Moses, you did all this. And let's make a captain, they say, and let's go back to Egypt. And of course, they got judged for that. They never saw the promised land. We must know God has not changed. And we must make up our minds, as Joshua will say at the end of his life and ministry, choose you today who you will serve. Keeping in mind, it's going to be difficult either way. But my way of logic is thinking that, well, that way is hard. Yeah, I mean, it's easy in the beginning. See, that's how it goes. It's easy in the beginning, but it creeps up on you. It gets worse and worse, like debt, just worse and worse and worse. This one's harder, and sometimes it's even harder as you go along. But it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Let me tell you this. When you have God inside you, it don't matter what people do or what people say. It don't matter how many of them you are. There's a stability inside you that nobody can touch, nobody can move. And you actually don't need the validation of other people because God himself is your strength. Not religion. God himself is your strength. And when that's in place, as hard as it is to follow Christ... And I'm telling you, as I get older, I'm finding it more difficult than I did even years ago. And I've always been committed. I hope that that's a good sign, but I don't like it any more than you like it. 
When God introduces into my life a godly depression because he's trying to get my attention on something, or simply, John 15, what does he say? Every branch that's in me is bearing fruit. The Father prunes it. Now, you may say to the Lord, I don't get it. I'm doing well. I'm bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. God says, no. So we're going to trim you back. As you know, most of all of you know from gardening, and you cut bushes back, they grow even more. And depending what type of bush, I, I ran over with the lawnmower. <laughs> Our, what do you call it? Those things, they're kind of like everywhere. It'll come back to me. Anyway, I figure I finished these guys off by just running them literally over with the lawnmower, and that was that. All you could see was little white stumps. A month later, they're bigger than ever. Because that's what pruning does. So when you're doing well on the Lord, and you're actually doing well, and God introduces this pruning process, which may be a godly sorrow. That's not always the case, but it may be a godly depression. It's that you bear more fruit. So if you have this much peace, it becomes that much more peace. Joy becomes not, you know, when you take the bottle off of something that is carbonated, you, know, you shake it up and boof, it's all over the place. There's a lot of people, a lot of professing Christians, that's how their life is. You know, as long as the music is dynamic and the preacher is dynamic and everything is kind of emotional and appealing to the emotions, it's all good. It's all joy. Oh, what a great church service we had. But then during the week, it's all gone. The joy of the Lord that we find in the scriptures is intermingled with long-suffering. It's intermingled with faith, love. It's intermingled with self-control. It doesn't sit alone. None of them do. It's not fruits, by the way, of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit. And they all work in harmony. They all work together. So your joy is not like superficial and supercilious. Just this abiding sense of peace that's mingled with a type of joy that you know you're on the right path, that as difficult as it may be, and you've been doing it for 40 years, your shoes are still intact, like Israel. And though you're waiting every day for when would the manna come, it comes. And by the way, let me say this to you. The Bible says that God had a reason. I mean, he could have gave them a week, a month, six months worth of rations, and they stock up, and they would have been happy, but they also would have been comfortable in themselves and probably sinned even worse against the Lord. So what he did is he just gave them one day. Give us this day our daily bread. Because what happens when that's all gone, the daily bread? You got to go back to God and be dependent on him. And for some, their point of view is that, well, that's a bad thing, but it's not. To be close to God, obviously, is not a bad thing. It's the idea of how we get close to God. Godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. that says, this has got to go. Like I said, for those of you who are gardeners or you plant gardens or you do your landscaping or whatever you do, as whatever, your lawn gets prettier, then you, you work even harder on the little bad spots that you have, little patches and so on. God's the same way. So just keep in mind that there's two types of depression. Anxiety is different because, you know, you could just say to yourself real quick, for God has not given unto me the spirit of fear, but the power of love and a sound mind. Depression comes in two different packages. It's one that comes from the world, one that we've all experienced, what sin has done to the world. We're seeing it on the news. We're seeing it everywhere. We're hearing it. It's in our homes. It's in our marriages, the children, everything, your relationship with your parents. Then there's godly sorrow that leads you to go to God. Say, God, I have to change. I realize this is what I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm called to be. Come with me to Romans chapter 8 so we get the point of what is this really all about. Chapter 6 as well at length tells us what is the purpose. You could use the expression, why do I go to church? Keeping in mind you don't go to church, that you are the church, but let's just use it. Why do we go to church? What am I doing here? Well, this is the reason. 
Now, this is what it is. We can look, begin down verse 5, chapter 8, Romans. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. I'm thinking of a preacher who I never watch and have no respect for. He was trying to illustrate, you know, how God blesses us abundantly with tons of money and all this stuff. Used an illustration of him driving a car and he's got women on each arm, beautiful women. And he's telling his congregation and the listeners on television, hey, dummy, mean you, the Christian, you could have this too if you just believed me. Now, you would recognize this as being absurd, but many do not. For the Bible says, those that do mind the things of the flesh, they do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit, were called to live a spiritual life. For to be carnally minded is death. It's this road here. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's that road there. Because the carnal mind is God's enemy. It's enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be, the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is not one of his. He is none of his. This man goes to church every week. Doesn't matter. The point of what the Bible calls salvation is to convert us into the image and likeness of Christ. The blood is applied. So there we have the cross and the atonement. Grace is given. Mercy is given through the cross. Grace is given for us to fulfill the design of God. The design of God is to become more like Jesus in every respect. One of the things I think that we don't care for, speaking for myself, is the rejection that you get. The rejection that you get from church leaders. The rejection you get from the theologically inclined or theologians themselves. When in my point of view, the Bible is very clear. I've told you this before and I want to say it again. I've always been a reader. I read a lot. I don't read novels and stuff. I don't read much fiction, but I'm aware of some of these people out there. They're saying some good things, got some good writings. I've read a few of them. But nothing, I mean, nothing satisfies me like reading this book. I could be whatever, confused or whatever, and I start reading the book, it just, I, I don't know why, I just don't, I'm not confused. You know why? Because when it says to be carnally minded is death, I say to myself, oh, to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And I say, oh, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's not really that hard to discern. The whole secret is doing it. If you've watched this, some of you have, I know, if you watch any of my teachings on nervous symptoms, I've got about 300 videos up there now. It's not the information that, that and I always tell this, you know, well, from time to time, I tell the people who do watch, the information is not going to help you. You have to do this. I have a woman who was, at one time, a regular listener, that came across something that I said, that you have to do this. And uh, she wrote to me, and she told me, she said, I refuse. I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. And I, you know, remember, I'm dealing with people that are, some are severely depressed, some are suicidal, some have you know, long-term mental health problems. But it wasn't for me to say, well, you know, it's your choice, but my teachings won't get you free. It's applying those teachings. It's doing it. That's why we don't have the type of results that we read of in the Bible, Book of Acts, whatever, because in so many cases, it's simply not being applied. Those of you who are cerebral, and I've been told that over the years by a lot of people, including friends when I was young, you think too much, but I'm a thinker. And I could intellectualize the Bible, and for my own gratification, get into arguments with other Christians about how I'm right and my doctrine, and you're wrong and your doctrine. But I know, and I've learned a long time ago, it's not about that, it's about how do I apply it? Do I actually do it? 
You could have a whole stack of books on physiology and workout routines and all these things, but none of them do you any good unless you actually do it. So at this point, we have to say, which the Apostle Paul will in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he'll tell the Corinthian church, he says, now examine yourself, whether you're actually in the faith, the faith of Christ, except you be reprobates. We use reprobate, we used to use the term anyway, you know, when you want to insult somebody. Well, you're all degenerate, you're just a reprobate. When we now compare it with the book, you realize that that's not something you want to be. Reprobate. A reprobate mind means you no longer can discern good from evil. You can't discern right from wrong. And you'll find it in the church. I mean, it's everywhere. But you'll find it in the church where the scriptures are all twisted. They're all twisted and taken out of their context, out of the media context, the context of the Bible as a whole, and out of the context of what is God's design. So I'm not going to assume that when you came here today, you knew or know what God's design is for your life. But the book said, well, let's, you know, let's take a moment. Let's read it. It's right in Romans 8. And it's the verse that I like to point out from time to time. Verse 28. I have not yet met a Christian that doesn't like that verse or doesn't have it hanging in their home. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That's what we say to people to encourage them, which is fine. Except that we need to encourage them in the context we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And then your brother in the Lord, your sister in the Lord is going to say, amen, amen. Thank you so much. Don't stop at 28. Read verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed. Now this is something that children don't like no matter how old they get. Conformed. Did you grow up in a house where dad or maybe mom said, these are the rules of my house. Back in the old days, it was... These are the rules of my house. For me, I'm good with that. Anybody who tells me, if you're going to come here, these are the rules, and I examine them, I say, I'm good with that. I'm fine. I'm not going to break the rules. The design is in verse 29. Everything is working for good. Remember, he's going to talk about being persecuted at the edge of a sword, in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. We are killed all the day. After he says, all things are working for good. We don't recognize those things as good, and in themselves, they're not good. But it's that godly sorrow for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You belong to Christ. This is why God is introducing in your life pruning, chastening, or my subject today, godly depression. If you've ever experienced godly depression, let me tell you something that will definitely be a part of your life. When you know of people who you loved who once were this way with the Lord very straight and now they're not, and they're not in compliance when you speak to them. I remember as a pastor, I speak to quite a few people, and then they give me reasons why, no, I won't, and this, and they're justifying their behavior when it's clearly against what the book says. What you feel, you don't feel good about that. You don't walk away saying, well, I told them, because that's not how God feels. In Ezekiel, God says, I don't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. You may, or I may, because we're human. But godly sorrow will have an element of feeling compassion on other people when they think they're still walking with the Lord, like Peter followed afar off, and they're not. And someone will say to you, why do you think about those things? I mean, come on. Well, it's part of being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. It's just not walking on water all the time and healing the sick. That's part of it. Well, maybe not walking on water as much as healing the sick. Um, he wept over Jerusalem. They were going to kill him. They were going to spit on him, pull out his beard. I mean, literally tear out his beard, crown of thorns, the whole thing. But we all know about that. He wasn't weeping because he was going to suffer. He was weeping because they were going to reject him. 
And that's a part of the godly depression that I'm talking about today. That you really feel for people. I've had people say to me, why do you bother thinking about so-and-so and so-and-so? I can't always explain the reason why, but the truth of it is that I feel bad for them. And I'm not the final judge, but I feel bad for them. That's when you know you're starting to arrive at the image and likeness of Christ. Because you actually feel bad for people. They're not living right and whatever they're doing, violating some things we read today and justifying it and everything else. And then you get so-called theological arguments, which is not theological. They're philosophical ideologies that come from the flesh, a mindset on the flesh. I've had it happen. Write out all these verses for me. And they're not put together. They're not strung together correctly. They're out of context. That'll be part of godly sorrow. You'll actually feel a pity for people who don't know Christ. When you have, as we just did yesterday, an outreach to win people to Christ is to win people to Christ. With all of this being included, which we have to factor in this, this has not been popular from the time Jesus brought it along. It wasn't popular in the first century. Read the rest of Romans 8, what Paul says. As it is written, verse 36, we are killed all the day and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. <laughs> I don't want that. But that's part of this, the design of God. You're going to feel for other people as well as yourself. You're going to grieve over your children like the Puritans did who would call a prayer meeting every day at noon, ring the bell, come out of the fields wherever they were and pray. What? What did they pray for? The salvation of their own children. Whatever the Puritans, aren't Puritans beget Puritans that beget Puritans that beget Puritans? I'll tell you how you can find out. Go look at Harvard and go look at Yale. They were started by the Puritans. Harvard, Yale, none of these, any of these schools well, Harvard and Yale in particular, started by the Puritans, don't even remotely resemble the ideal. Why? Because you can't give salvation to your children. You can't give them to your grandchildren. You can't hand it away to, to people. It has to be done on an individual level. The personal commitment to Christ that we talk about. That's all that we can do. Come with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, a verse that most of you are very well acquainted with. And it was something I mentioned earlier, and now I want to read it to you. And so when it comes to the scriptures, all 31,102 verses of them, it tells us in verse 16, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. In almost any Bible teaching church, you're going to get an arousing amen. They have the preachers, you know, asking you, come on, can I get amen? Amen. All scripture, all scripture. All well and good. But what is it profitable for? And someone will shout, for doctrine. Okay. Doctrine is very important. But did we skip reproof or correction? Instruction in righteousness is actually a bit more severe if you read it in Greek than in English. It means a type of a corporal punishment. I don't even know today that you could admit, oh, well, I spanked my kids when they were little. Let's just simply say parents did. And it has that type of, not specifically that, but it has that type of an idea of something that's like the godly sorrow I'm talking about that God introduces us to correct us. Let me give you a simple example. In the years I was taught as a rudimental drummer, because we're in a drum line and I was in a championship drum line, you can't cock your wrist. So I had to play with popsicle sticks on my wrist to keep it straight. You can't be out here like this. So I had to play with newspapers stuck under here with popsicle sticks on my wrist to keep them straight because your hand is supposed to look like this. Popsicle sticks over here, newspapers under my arms. Oh, then you have a little clothespin over here because you don't want your sticks. They can't come higher than this. And you practice like that. And the instructor does not accept, oh, well, we'll just kind of, no. Don't like the way my wrist is? You put the popsicle sticks on an ace bandage and so on. But was that correction for the benefit of the instructor 
or the student. Well, that's minor compared to some things that God can introduce into our life to produce godly depression. But the point is to lead us to repentance. And so we read earlier that repentance leads to salvation, to eternal life, to spending eternity in the kingdom with Christ. And it's not to change. That's what it means, not to be repented of. I've told you this, and this is the truth. Am I tempted like you? In every point, just like you, absolutely. Have I ever regretted giving my life over to Christ? Not even one single day in 45 years. It's not always easy. But I've never regretted. I've never looked back and said, did I make the right choice here? Made the wrong choices in some of the churches I was in. Never the wrong choice with Jesus. Never. And that's what that scripture means. That when you turn away from it, you know, uh, drunkenness, you know, everybody's having fun. And then you turn away from it. And I'm reading this, I see it on social media, people rejoicing, hey, I'm five years clean. They go down to the month. I've been four years, six months, 25 years for others off of drugs, um, off alcohol. Because now that they're out of it, they see it for what it really is. The same about adultery, the same about extortion, the same about having an abusive mouth, revilers. And just keep on going down the list. Once God introduces the discipline to bring you into line with Jesus, you see that these things were never right because they're not of God. Godly sorrow, 2 Timothy chapter 3. You could begin with me at verse 1, but I'm going to give you a, a loose translation rather than the precise translation that's given here so that we understand the times we live in now. So I'm giving you the loose translation. You could read along in our Bible. We use the King James. But understand this, that in the last days, dangerous times with great stress and trouble will come. Difficult days that will be hard to bear. All right, so this is a, a paraphrase. For people will be lovers of their self, and I've done it, so don't think I'm a hypocrite. This whole thing, I mean, they even sell different things so you can take a better selfie. I just find that kind of interesting, you know. I see it in a lot of places where I go, but that's just a kind of a silly illustration. People will be lovers of their selves, Narcissistic. Read up on the story of Narcissus, the little boy that fell in love with his own reflection. Self-focused. Lovers of money impelled by greed. This is the last days. Boastful. Arrogant. Revilers. Same thing we saw earlier. Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful. I met a man yesterday. Uh, people sometimes just come over and start talking to me. He had a lot of good things to say. He really did. I judged him as being a little bit older than myself. He's an immigrant from Costa Rica, and he still maintained a fairly heavy accent. But he says, you know, we have so much. We should be so grateful. I said, exactly. We have so much as Americans and as American Christians. But are we? And we were talking about this, him and I. And he asked me a question because I identified myself as a preacher. He says, do you think maybe God gave us too much? And I said, well, no. I mean, you know, he gave us the freedom and we could do what we want. But sometimes it's not that we lack. It's that we have so much, too much, maybe. Well, at least so much that we're not grateful for what we have. I saw that sign, it's in my house. Count your blessings. So now it's reminding me to start counting the blessings of what I already have. So to keep concentrating on the things I don't have or whatever's not going right and so on. Let me finish. There'll be lovers of money impelled by greed, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and profane. They will be unloving, devoid of natural human affection, calloused and inhumane, irreconcilable, Malicious gossips, devoid of self-control, immoral, brutal, haters of good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of sensual pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the thing. 
I'm putting the but in there as a loose translation, but holding to a form of outward godliness, a religion, although they have denied its power, for their conduct nullifies their claim of faith. Avoid such people and keep far away from them. That's a powerful statement. Their conduct. You remember the old saying, I can't hear what you're saying because what you're doing speaks so loudly? Now, you won't have to be fooled by people's words. I'm not. Watch what they do. Let me take you to prayer today and hope that you got just an introduction to the difference in depression between the world's depression that ultimately leads to death and godly depression that leads to a change. And then the depression is removed. And you find that you're actually in a better place. And I forgot to mention to you the words of Solomon. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For, he says, better not to hear the song of fools singing about this and you know, some of these songs, you know, and there we are with the whiskey and the women and all that. I've heard plenty of it, and not from country western, but just from being brought up on some, some Irish folk songs. And it makes it sound so good. But having been there, it wasn't so good. It wasn't so good. God is good. Let's bow our hearts. <clears throat> Let's pray. And let's ask God to continue to search our hearts. If, for instance, you may be going through what I mentioned today, godly depression. You're saying, I'm walking with you, Lord. I'm walking close. I'm living for you. What's going on here? Why am I so lonely? Why do I feel so dark? Well, it just may be a godly depression that's going to lead you to a place of repentance in some area of your life where God is pruning you. And he's very thorough, God. So don't be so dismayed, but learn the lesson. Every time I go through something, I ask myself, what is the lesson I'm supposed to learn? I compare it to the Bible, and I say, oh, okay, yeah, Jesus went through this. Okay, so lesson learned. Let's just suck it up and deal with it, so on. I suggest today that you do the same thing. What is it today that God is teaching you? Do you understand the difference between depression that just comes because, you know, people are unhappy and other things? And what is the type of depression that you may have today that's coming actually from the hand of God? to say, it's time to stop doing this. Or in this area, you've grown a little, I'm going to help you grow a lot, and a lot more. Let's go and ask God for wisdom, because you know what? We really need wisdom as to what is God saying. So Father, we come to you today, and we ask you in Jesus' mighty name to show us the difference between depression that comes from the world and the depression that comes from you. Godly sorrow works repentance not to be repented of, not to be changed. Help us today, Lord Father God, to discern between the two and to accept what you introduce into our lives as the discipline to lead us to be more Christ-like. Certainly, we're far from being Christ-like. Help us to be submissive to you, to be in submission to you. Lord, continue to pour out your Spirit, for our times are in your hands. And certainly, by the signs that we see everywhere that you told us about, we know your coming is very very near. Help us to be prepared and to be faithful to the end. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. We give you the honor this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.